Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, graduate researcher at Concordia University, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we get started, let's hear a couple of quick takeaways from our guest today. Takeaway number one. The more readable your paper is, the more likely people are to read it. Nobody wants to read your boring science paper. You need to captivate them to want them to read your paper. Keep it interesting. Keep it clear. Takeaway number two. I would recommend all graduate students to take time to learn how to write. I think that if there is no writing um, course or writing program, that you should take it upon yourself to go and learn how to do it. Absolutely. Writing is a critical skill, and it can always, always be improved. And in five words, a note on work-life balance. You are not your work. Here we go. Today, I am with my first guest, Alexandra Chisholm. Alexandra is a PhD candidate in experimental psychology at Concordia University, and she is currently studying under the supervision of Dr. Yuri Shalev. As of right now, she is a triple-funded NSERC scholar with over three years of teaching experience. At Concordia, she's taught Introduction to Statistical Analysis and the Fundamentals of Animal Learning. Her research explores the neural mechanisms involved in heroin-seeking using relatively new technology that's been around for maybe 15 years. And this technology uses receptors that are designed to be exclusively activated by designer drugs. More specifically, she wants to be able to identify what happens in the brain that increases drug-seeking behavior. Of course, this research is not carried out on humans just yet, but on rats, who are on quite food-restrictive diets, it turns out. Alexandra has been focusing on a specific area in the middle of the brain, that's part of the thalamus, because of its unique location in the brain and how it's involved in drug-seeking and food intake, bringing everything together. So, here we are. Alexandra, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, this is this is very exciting as well, I, I think, for both of us. Uh, we are both starting our own podcast independently that are kind of running under the same academic style umbrella. I believe our goals are slightly different, so just to put it out there in the open, my goal with this podcast is to break down a barrier between highly academic work that is being done in labs and the general populace who can actually gain a tremendous amount of insight from the hours and hours and hours that we as graduate students put into work behind the scenes. Yeah, uh, I definitely have a very similar goal in that I feel that research isn't as publicly available as it should be and that the general public doesn't necessarily interact with scientists or researchers or experts on a particular topic. And the, the whole point for me of doing research is that I can educate people. Um, so yeah, I think we have very similar goals. Well, there you go. Uh, you did just start a podcast, a quick little plug for you. Yeah. The podcast is called Cannabinoidology. And the very brief but, uh, but on-the-nose description is a podcast dedicated to unlocking the science of cannabinoids. Do you want to give us a, maybe a quick two-sentence description of what that even is? What is a cannabinoid and why should I care? Yeah, uh, I think the general idea of why I started this was that I get a lot of family members who constantly ask me questions about cannabis since the legalization, and they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Um, so cannabinoids are chemical compounds that work I'll just say briefly chemical compounds that work within the endocannabinoid system. And so cannabinology is the study of that. So I'm hoping to bring the science of cannabinoids to the people so that they can better understand what's happening in the brain, as well as in the body in terms of the effects of cannabis, as well as other cannabinoids like CBD. Okay, we're talking brain and body. And you said other cannabinoids apart from CBD. So what are the main cannabinoids then? Yeah, so... Um, the mintox and intoxicating cannabinoid um, that most people would be familiar with is THC, which is the psychoactive component of cannabis that gets you high. Then right. there's also CBD, which is non-intoxicating, although it is psychoactive. Um, and then you also have other compounds like uh, CBG or CBC, 
um, you know, without getting into them. Um, but we're just starting to kind of understand more about how they actually work because very, very little research has been done as it pertains to these products, but they, or as it pertains to these chemicals, but they seem to have a, a lot of potential therapeutic uses um, that still warrant a lot of research. Interesting. I have heard a little bit about cannabinoids uh, just through some fellow colleagues who've spoken about it in various presentations. Uh, do you think right now we actually have the requisite experimental methods to really extract the, all the information that we can out of this kind of research? Or is there some breakthrough technology that you think would entirely change the face of cannabinoid research? Um, so right now on my podcast, I've had Dr. Ryan McLaughlin um, come on and recently like last year, I was at the CCNP meeting, which is the Canadian College for Neuropsychopharmacology, and he had actually just presented a model whereby he finally developed a model where rats can actually learn to self-administer cannabis. And up till that point, the cannabis models um, were very weak because most of the time they were injecting THC and animals don't like to do that. So we didn't even have a voluntary behavior at that time. So I think we're really just at the forefront. And now that that model exists, now we will start to be able to unlock some of the changes that we see in neural circuitry as a result of using cannabis or CBD, for example. So I think we're going to see a lot of research coming out in the future, but we just started. Okay, so this is a pretty new field, you would say, then? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the cannabinoid field really started, I, I guess, in around the 1960s when Dr. Raphael Meshulam actually isolated um, THC for the first time and determined that it was the psychoactive component of cannabis that got people high. So it's really not that old of a field, but because of legalization and other research issues, or I should say lack of legalization, um, the field isn't as far forward as it should be. Um, okay. And I think if you do listen to the podcast, there's a lot of researchers on there who also um, are not very happy with the fact that you know, there seems to be a lot of loopholes that they need to jump through to get access to work with CBD or THC. Right. The ethics you know, is probably a bit of a pain. To get the clearance even to be able to work with these substances requires a whole other host of, of paperwork. Right. So. so you're telling me already right off the bat, just accessing substances that are found in marijuana are difficult. Although you mentioned uh, in a quick bio that you sent me before this podcast that you're actually focusing on heroin-seeking behavior, which I mentioned in the introduction to this episode. So heroin seems like it might even be more tricky to get your hands on. How does that even compare? Is, is it an order of magnitude more difficult or are drugs in general, just like this psychoactive drugs, uh, really difficult to get your hands on? Um, I think in general, so I'm not the one who fills out the paperwork, although I do know the processes because I'm on the uh, AREC committee at Concordia, um, which is the Animal, Animal Research Ethics Committee. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, in terms of what I've heard through the grapevine, um, heroin is relatively easy to obtain. Once you have all the permits to do so, you send an export permit um, or an import permit and any uh, associated party sends an export permit. Basically, they meet up at the border. Once all the paperwork's good, it gets shipped over. It does take time. Um, sometimes I think it takes, like I think one time we waited maybe two months because all the paperwork wasn't in line. Mm -hmm. But from what I've heard from researchers who work with THC and uh, CBD even, it's um, more complicated because they actually have to have visits from the DEA, at least in the United States. I'm not exactly sure how it works in Canada to even first start to work with those substances, but then actually getting them, they can only get them from a place in, uh, from Mississippi University that's sponsored by NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which is also where we get um, our heroin supply. So, start my but I think once that's all set up, I think they're relatively the same. Okay, fair enough. But you wouldn't recommend that I start my own uh, at-home heroin lab where I study myself exclusively? <laughs> no, definitely not. Unless I want to drive to the border uh, frequently. Which is a, <laughs> yeah. not a bad drive, but maybe not worth not it. 35 minutes from Montreal, so not too okay. difficult. All right. Yeah. I like that the drug exchange happens at the border. That makes it seem more official, but also slightly sure. more sketchy. Yeah, it's a little weird because sometimes um, it tends to sit at the border if the paperwork doesn't show up. So if you look at kind of um, the history, like of the package, it's just sitting at the border waiting, um, which is, you know, odd. But uh, yeah, we, I've personally, I have 
never run out of heroin in the lab to be able to um, run experiments. So that's great that, news. I'm happy to hear that you have an abundant supply yeah, of yeah. Uh, morphine that crosses the blood brain barrier, as I've been told. Uh, maybe, maybe that's not a great definition, but that's at least how I have been told uh, heroin has been described to me as kind of like morphine, but it can go directly into your brain. Um, so heroin definitely turns into morphine. So if you look at kind of the peak levels, assuming intravenous um, administration, heroin levels peak within probably the first two minutes and then they slowly start to decline and then it's metabolized into morphine and then you start to see morphine peak in between probably somewhere between five and 10 minutes and then it stabilizes. So you have kind of heroin um, on board dropping and then morphine coming on board because it's being metabolized. So Whoa. So if I were to somehow score heroin on the street, not that that's a thing that I do on any average afternoon or evening for that matter, I would essentially experience a heroin high followed by a morphine high. Uh, yeah, although morphine doesn't peak to the same degree, it's more responsible for the analgesic properties of, of heroin. Sure. But, I'm, but, but if I were yep. to just take morphine directly, I would essentially experience similar things to the come down of the heroin peak. Yep. Yeah. Very, very cool. So I guess one question that I'd like to have answered before I have you leave forever, potentially, is uh, how did you decide that you wanted to get into research on drugs specifically? It, it definitely is an, an interesting topic. I'm not going to go ahead and ask you what your personal drug use history is, unless you've overcome some great challenges that you'd like to share here. That would be cool. Otherwise, just in general, was there a paper you read or person you spoke to, some triggering event that led you to want to head down the road of drug research? Um, I think particularly I just became enthralled in the idea that a substance could take over somebody's life um, because I'd seen it in my family. Um, some of my family members, um, not super close family members, you know, not mom or dad. <laughs> um, and personally, I am not someone who uses substances. Um, I think if anybody knows me, they know that I just take large amounts of caffeine, uh, but that's about it. Okay, um, that's a so, substance in its own yeah, right. Yeah, uh, grad school will get you there. Right. Uh, but yeah, I had become enthralled with the idea that how could something so little take over such complex aspects of someone's life? And why does it stay that way for so long? And why do people relapse? So I just started thinking about these questions. And then I started taking classes, obviously, my undergrad in psychology. And I was always really interested in neuroscience. And the two seemed to come together kind of at the right time. Um, and I had taken, you know, many seminars with um, different researchers in the field. So one being Dr. Linda Parker, who is actually a very well-known cannabinoid researcher. Um, which university? At, uh, the University of Guelph. Okay. That's what and you did so your undergraduate it, degree? It really just, yeah, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Guelph um, right. in psychology with a minor in neuroscience, but now they actually have, I believe, a major in neuroscience. They didn't have it when I was there at the time. Okay. Uh, so Too that's bad. A, yeah. All the uh, good stuff always been, comes once you leave. Yeah. And then from there, I moved to Concordia um, from my undergrad. But yeah, that's kind of how I got interested. And personally, just as an individual, I just like to put together puzzle pieces. Um, and science is a lot about trying to put together little pieces of information to get a coherent picture. So I think it's a job that fits well for me and one that I'm very passionate about. Sure, that's great. I mean, if you if you are someone who is attracted to problem solving for the rest of your life, uh, as the problems get more and more complex, and the tasks become increasingly difficult, then academia is definitely for you. Uh, if you weren't studying drugs, was there something else that you were kind of toying with as an idea? I know I've definitely flip-flopped around uh, a whole bunch in terms of my research interests. Is there something that competed early on? You said, well, maybe I'll just pick a road and see what happens. Um, being a vet has always been something that I was interested in, but I never pursued that because I kind of get to do the same thing with the research. So it was kind of a compromise. Being a vet is cool and all, but I also get to do surgeries. So I get the best of both worlds um, doing what I do now. Um, and I've developed a lot of skills with regard to um, expertise on surgeries that I don't think I would have had the opportunity to if I would have gone to vet school. 
I like and, how you mentioned that you were interested in becoming a vet. And most times people say that's because they say they love animals. You actually really wanted to slice animals open. So you're really happy if you could do that in any environment. I love to do surgeries. It's a very weird skill that I have. I, I don't know. I feel like I have a knack for it. I love doing it. But I also okay. do love animals. And part of the reason why I did get into research is obviously a lot of people get um, you'll hear people about, you know, terrible ethics stories. And that's also why I'm a member of VA Rec is I love animals and I want to make sure that they're treated properly and cared for and that I can do the very best that I can to make sure that their life with me is, you know, the absolute best. Um, but yes, I do have two dogs that I absolutely love. Um, so you would absolutely love to perform surgery on maybe. Yeah, uh, potentially. Um, Every morning you look at them, they're eating their kibble. You're like, oh, right there. I can see the nape of the neck. It's open. It's I open. have a laugh. So maybe he'll need some hip surgery in a couple years or a knee surgery. Who okay. knows? I can break his legs for you if you want. Yeah. And through academia, though, I've, I've made very good friends with vets. Um, so okay. we had actually a, a research technician in our lab, Dr. Damaris Rizzo, who was you know, very influential in a lot of my PhD work and showed me a lot of the techniques. So I actually got to work directly with someone kind of who's been in that line. Um, which was really awesome. That's sweet. Uh, so you are you are midway through your PhD, or did you just embark on it, or are you almost done? Where are you at? No, I'm, I'm actually almost done. Amazing. Um, I'm done all of my research. Um, so I ended my experiments in I think it was October uh, last year. Um, and thank God I did because of coronavirus. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah. So that so hasn't had a huge impact then on your research because you finished running everything. Yeah, so I finished running everything, but it has definitely had an impact on my ability to actually finish my dissertation, um, simply because even though I do have uh, a draft of my dissertation done, obviously a lot of things came up in the lab, which means that, um, you know, attention or priorities get shifted, um, which is completely understandable. So we've kind of had to, from what my original plan was, it's definitely been shifted in time, but that's totally fine. It's, okay. it's completely You're chill. As long as you can keep slicing animals open, you're just, you're just cruising through this degree. Yeah. Really loved my experience at Concordia. And I'm, I'm sad that I'm not doing, I miss doing research, but when you leave, not leave research, but when you take a step back, you get to gain different skills. So you get to think more critically about the research that you've done, read more about the theories, which I think is something that we don't get to do in graduate school as much as we probably should because you're so focused on running a particular experiment at a particular sure. time and you're kind of stuck in this little window and you don't have that chance to step back and really think about what could I have done with this experiment differently that I could have addressed an extra question for example um, that I wish right. I had have done now um, so it's been nice to sit down and, and read and think about the research that I've actually done and try and put those puzzle pieces together, but on paper. That's, that's totally fair. And I, I, I definitely agree that it's, it can be really, really therapeutic almost to just dive into a really well-written paper and extract yeah. just something that, that, that really is just to the point it's clearly written and you can extract so much good information out of it. What's an example of a paper you read at any point in your PhD or at any point in your academic career where you started reading this paper and immediately it put a smile on your face and you were scribbling notes and you were thinking, oh my God, this is, this is, this is opening my eyes to a way of thinking that I hadn't explored before. Or they brought up a theory that just totally changed your perception of the field. Like, did that ever happen? Um, I think with the PVT, so a lot of the work that was done with the PVT. Wait, 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 wait. PVT stands for? Sorry, paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus. So it's, it's involved in pretty much everything, if I, if I had to classify it, feeding, homeostatic control, drug seeking. And at the time, not a lot of literature was presented on this topic. So when I started to read about it, um, I was getting kind of mismatch information. We thought it worked a particular way given a particular model, and it didn't actually turn out to be the case. So it was actually a little bit frustrating when I first started reading about it. And then, you know, as you, as you continue on into research, um, so many other researchers started to picking up on on this area and it started to become a, a very hot topic. Um, and so I remember just as I sat down to um, write parts of my dissertation, I remember thinking in my head, God, how does the PVT select what input is most important? And I turn around and a paper from Dr. Gavin McNally comes out 
suggesting that the PVT acts as an arbiter. So it kind of is a comp computationally selecting which input is important and deciding on kind of a winner. And I just said, oh, stole my thunder. Um, so but that was kind of a paper that was really wow for me at that time. Okay, that's great. That, to be totally honest, that sounds really reminiscent of uh, like an intro psychology description of how action potentials build up at, I believe it's called the, uh, the axon hillock. Mm -hmm. And you have this, this summation of action potentials that can either then lead to like another action potential heading down the axon or not. And so this, while it doesn't seem like it's, it's a selection, there still is a certain amount of activity that's coming in. And the overall result of all that activity is gonna lead to some binary outcome. So was the crazy thing with this paper that instead of this being a binary outcome, there was lots of more complex information coming in and it seemed like a decision, like almost like a conscious decision needed to be made. Yeah, exactly. It's basically the idea that the PVT is the master decision maker almost and that it's combining all of this information from multiple different inputs because it has so many different ones, which is what makes working with it very complex and multiple different outputs. So somehow the PVT is able to select the most important inputs at a given time, especially when the body or when uh, an individual is presented in a circumstance where there's a conflict and the PVT is somehow able to solve this conflict for you without you even thinking about it. What kind uh, of conflict would this be? Um, in most cases, it's like a motivational conflict. So if you think about, um, you know, drug addiction, for example, there are new models coming out whereby a rat presses a lever, but sometimes that lever is paired with a foot shock. So they'll go to press the lever, but there's an apprehension and the PVT seems to be involved in this capacity um, to select what the rodent should do at a particular time. It's able to solve this conflict. Okay, so I would assume based on my knowledge of the way that like, I guess the primary cortex is built, we have this super huge decision-making prefrontal cortex or frontal cortex uh, that acts as a, some sort of executive functioning machine. So what, what kind of relationship then exists between the prefrontal cortex or PFC and this, this more kind of inner, inner brain structure in the thalamus? A very complex one, it turns out. Okay, I, uh, I would imagine. So the prelimbic, so the PFC contains like the prelimbic as well as the infralimbic, at least in the in the rat, right? So limbic uh, referring to emotion usually or like uh, it's not emotion. It's just a prelimbic cortex is part of the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. But just um, for our listeners, limbic means what exactly? What what does yeah, the limbic system take care of? Limbic pertains to your emotions, obviously, but um, I wouldn't classify that. Um, like the prelimbic is involved in a lot of impulse related um, behaviors, motivational behaviors. Um, but the very interesting thing about how it works with the PVT is that it seems to be involved in a lot of individual differences in response to uh, motivationally salient cues. Working with the PVT in the prelimbic cortex has been, was very challenging. That was a very challenging part of, uh, of my PhD because I wasn't sure what to predict. And then we also don't know about the animals that are um, kind of within the middle because those sign trackers and the goal trackers are extremes. And so we don't really know how the PVT functions kind of in what I would call kind of a normal rat. So there we go. Um, and so then also when you're working- Into the binary system that we have the action potentials where if, if, if you're at two extremes, then obviously the kinds of behaviors that not only rats but humans can produce exist on a continuum. So how do we yeah. get the result of, you know, it, sometimes it's not, it's, especially things get much more complex with like higher level cognition in humans where we can decide, we can, we can weigh pros and cons of going to get a reward, right? Yeah. Do we have any, any idea of what kind of mechanisms come into play then in terms of like motivation, because motivation seems like it would also be tied to so many different systems. And I, I appreciate that it's complex. Um, in terms of at least the motivational saliency of cues, the prelimbic to PVT and then PVT to accumbens pathway seems to be critically important. Although research has really only just started to come out um, with regard to that. So it's still not a full picture in terms of 
motivation. And that's kind of what we're just learning about now. So um, how you block motivation, let's say just for simplicity's sake, in one phenotype rat be different than how you do it in a second phenotype of rat, given what they actually um, do in a particular paradigm. So that's one thing that I didn't do. I didn't look at the individual difference data because we didn't know at the time. We had no idea that this existed and it only came out after we started looking at the PVT. So if I were to go back in retrospect, that would be something that I would want to look at. But unfortunately, we don't have the data to do so. Um, but I think as, um, uh, yeah, uh, I do have a postdoc lined up already. Amazing. Congratulations. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, I won't talk too much about it because I don't, I don't want to jinx it yet. But I was awarded recently an FRQNT uh, yep. postdoc fellowship from uh, the FONS, which is the Quebec funding agency, mm -hmm. um, to go and do that. Um, but that's supposed to be in New York City. And as you know, right now, New York City is kind of an epicenter for a major infectious disease. So that's kind of on hold right now. Wait, a major infectious I... disease? What, what's going on? Yeah, what is that? What is what is COVID-19? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is like a little time capsule for the future when we all forget. Yeah. Okay. So far, so far, so good. I want you, Alexandra, to explain to me the way that the pathways operate in terms of motivation. You could explain using a paradigm with, with food. And we could even start to talk about the example of, of heroin and uh, the heroin-seeking behaviors. But I want to start at a super low level, uh, as simple as possible. I am just a child. And for some reason, I'm interested in knowing about heroin-seeking behavior. Where do you begin? I probably begin by telling you as a parent, why is your child interested in heroin seeking? It's a long behavior? story. Are they a baby? <laughs> no, I know. Um, in general, the thing that makes talking about the PVT difficult is because it's so complex. But if I had to break it down, I would say you have uh, one area in your brain that is able to select the most relevant behaviors for you ahead of time like eating macaroni and cheese yes or smacking my brother on the face because he's annoying exactly cool. um but sometimes this area makes mistakes which means that your behaviors can end up being incorrect as we see in the case of someone who uses drugs certain areas of the brain kind of become i'll just say taken over or hijacked mm -hmm. Um, and these um, brain regions make a decision, they make a decision that's swayed towards a particular motivationally salient or important aspect of your life, let's say. So cool, cool, cool. I'm on board. So not only are specific brains maybe uh, more, right, more predisposed to seeking out drugs in the first place, mm -hmm. right? but... Yep. Once you have taken the drug, that then further changes your brain to continue to seek that drug or reward more intensely. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, to a degree, yeah. Okay. Um, you definitely get um, changes in neural circuitry that we know are associated with um, increase in drug-seeking behaviors, for example. And so part of my job as a scientist is to try and figure out what areas of those of the brain and what circuits are being changed and how are they changed? Because theoretically, if we know that, we can help to put them back to a state of normalcy, which we would assume would get rid of a particular behavior that we might not like. So, for example, heroin seeking. So by stopping to take heroin, I can most likely change the way that my behavior is towards heroin. but. I guess, double-sided question here. Are there other environmental factors that can affect my heroin-seeking behavior? And by stopping my heroin-seeking altogether, is that also going to have downstream effects on other behaviors? So how does, how does the drug-seeking behavior fit into the larger scheme of just behavior in general? Yeah, so I think the one thing that we probably need to talk about is relapse, right? We know that a lot of people, even though they stop using drugs, relapse at very, very high rates, whether it be heroin, alcohol, cocaine, etc. 
when you stop taking a drug, there's a phenomenon that's called incubation of craving. So usually the longer that goes on, the higher your craving is for a particular drug. And we know that during abstinence, there are neural circuit changes that are associated with um, this increased you know, craving that you get to use drugs, which is what makes it difficult to stay abstinent. But that I think right like now- like when you get tired, you have this increasing feeling that you need to sleep. And if you don't sleep, you could actually become delirious. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, very similar concept at, at the base level, but we don't really know everything there is to know about how those circuits change as a result of using drugs, then abstaining from drugs, and then what happens to those circuits once you use a drug again. We don't know how permanent those changes are, for example, or if we can reverse those permanent changes, which to a degree, um, obviously some of my research has shown that we can at least abolish the behaviors that are associated with um, an increase in drug seeking, but not to a zero degree. So it doesn't go back to absolute zero. Never. Uh, uh, not in my hands. And I would, I would hazard a guess that if anybody presented experimental data showing that your rats went to absolute zero, that nobody would believe you anyway. Right. Okay. So you can never return. But here's a question then. Is anybody ever at zero? Like just because I've never used heroin, does that mean that I'm, at, I'm, I'm, I guess maybe you can explain what zero here means. But if I've never actually used a drug before, then am I at zero or is, does everybody actually start at some elevated level? What's the difference between me not seeking a drug before using a drug and me not seeking a drug after having used the drug? Um, I think if I think the easiest example to talk about would probably be rats. So, for example, everybody engages in particular behaviors um, every single day, right? Mm -hmm. If it's a rat and they go to press a lever for food and you take food away, they'll still press the lever because previously they learned that that's going to give them food, right? Mm -hmm. Just like if you go to your fridge and open up the fridge and you get food. I'm sure you've probably caught yourself at one point going to open up the fridge, even though you're not hungry. Right. Or, so, or, or when it's basically empty and I continually check to yes, see if food's magically going exactly. to. Exactly. And so to suggest that there would be kind of a zero behavior would be a little odd to me um, because we engage in behaviors every day that we're not consciously thinking about, but that are driven by a lot of the environmental um, factors and environmental cues that were around. Um, a good example of this was I recently tried to start um, a bulking diet to put on a lot of muscle. So any, any of them, uh, people at Concordia know I go to the gym quite frequently. Corona has really hindered my ability to go to the gym. So I was trying to eat healthier because obviously in the pandemic, I have been snacking a little too much, perhaps just probably like everybody else. And so I tried to clean up my diet a little bit. But one day I walked into the kitchen and there was a smell of brownies. And that's hard to resist when you have um, environmental cues that, you know, lead you that basically you're more likely to engage in a particular behavior if you're within that context. And nice. so uh, I ate the brownie, right? The whole thing? <laughs> the whole thing. Come on, Alexandra, you got to be better than that. You can't eat the whole brownie. Yeah. One bite. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, you know, just when you go to think about a very complex behavior like drug addiction or let's say heroin seeking, there are multiple levels that scientists need to think at um, and it's complex. So why, is, why is brownie seeking different than drug seeking though? What's the fundamental difference there? Perhaps you could argue me that they're not. I have worked with sugar in the past and I have never seen more rapid behavior um, than I have with sugar. Were you uh, watching me? <laughs> perhaps you're you have a sweet tooth a little i got 32 of them i think yeah so to the degree that you know let's say you go into the lab and you watch an animal engage in um let's say sugar seeking versus heroin seeking they engage in very similar behaviors so from a phenotype difference it would be kind of hard to classify them i think you do get animals that are high responders animals that are low responders you get a lot of variability in behavior, but that is, I think, essential when you go to look at individual differences. We know that everybody who uses um, a drug of abuse does not become addicted to it, right? right? So there's kind of this 
multifaceted complexity that comes with trying to look at um, a heroin-seeking behavior in terms of the context, in terms of the cues, in terms of the individual differences, in terms of you know how much did that particular rat take the day before, for example, um, do they maintain higher levels of heroin intake to start with than another rat? So it becomes a very um, muddy picture very quickly. Okay. Um, and here's in, a, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, here's a, I guess, a slightly more general question, which is, why is it that I cannot become physiologically addicted to brownie? If I stop eating brownie, I will not, as far as I'm concerned, have the same kind of adverse reaction to stopping my heroin use. So withdrawal doesn't seem to happen with sugar retreats. Does it happen? And how would you describe that reaction? Um, in terms of sugar, I'm definitely not an expert on that topic, and I have not read that literature for quite some time. Okay. So no problem. Um, although I would say that the first thing that you need to differentiate is addiction and physical dependence. Being physically dependent on something, is that an addiction? Does that physical dependence mean that you're addicted? So for example, caffeine um, is a great example of this. You could be physically dependent on caffeine, but perhaps not addicted to it in the sense that you let it take over your life. You need it, and without it, you feel foggy when you wake up. Perhaps you're not as focused, etc. cetera. Um, so there, there's, I think, a line that you need to consider when you're talking about habitual behaviors versus goal-directed behaviors versus um, being physically dependent on something. And obviously in animal models, we only look at a very small aspect of those behaviors and we don't capture the complexity of drug addiction in humans where we know it takes over somebody's life. Um, but we're starting to move towards those models that can try and um, incorporate some of those um, aspects. So for example, stop, so for example, in humans, humans stop taking drugs eventually usually because of the consequences or negative consequences that become associated with it. Your friends don't want to hang around you anymore. You don't have any money left. In animals, it's very hard to mimic that. Um, but recent work has started to come out with um, some new models that are, that are trying to gear towards that at least. That's actually crazy. So, so if you have five rats in a cage and you selectively give one of them access to heroin, they will not become a social reject. So the other rats don't actually judge the addicted, the heroin addicted rat and treat it differently? Uh, maybe they do. I have no idea. I, <laughs> I'm not, I think that's an empirical question that you could ask, but um, definitely in terms of um, rats engaging in social behavior, um, rats will choose to interact with a conspecific over using a drug of abuse. But even if you give them you know, this extended abstinence period, even after they choose to abstain from drugs by engaging um, or choosing to engage with another conspecific, they will return to drug-seeking behaviors. Sorry, what is a conspecific? Oh, sorry, conspecific is just a, a science-y word for saying they're rat friend. Okay, so sorry, can you, can you say the last two sentences again there with rat friend instead? Yeah, so basically, let's say you get, we let rats press a lever to get access to, I think they used amphetamine in this substance, so they learn to take amphetamine and then in the second phase of this experimental paradigm, they, the rat would be given a choice. So they learn to self-administer both. Essentially, they learn to press one lever to get access to a drug, and they learn to press another lever to get access to their friend. And cool. then you give them a choice. So once you pick one, you can't have the other one. And mm -hmm. usually what you'll see is that rats will choose to engage with another rat friend as opposed to engage with the drug. But then when you take them away from the drug for a period of time and you give them that same choice, they do go back to seeking drugs. So you're saying after a whole bunch of times of, of not selecting the drug, they'd actually yes. eventually they, kind they of- They actually become abstinent themselves by choosing not to press the lever for the drug, mm -hmm. but instead to choose um, to press the lever to engage with their rat friend instead. And so they're actually voluntarily abstaining from drug use at that time. Um, which is something that humans do. And in other models, um, we don't recapitulate that aspect of human drug addiction because we simply just take them out of the box and then they just don't have access to it. So that's a forced abstinence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important because um, we do know that there are different parts of the brain that seem to be involved in 
you know, voluntary abstinence versus forced abstinence. I'm just wondering if there's a kind of a, obviously there are many fundamental barriers between studying rats and then trying to correlate that to what would happen in the human brain. But one of the differences that just came to mind is the fact that a rat lifespan is probably a lot shorter than a human lifespan. If you were to just let it live out its life, like how long would the average lab rat live for? I think that depends on the length of the experiment. Um, but typically, um, so I'm saying like example, without any experimental manipulation. Uh, like, I think probably like two to three years, somewhere in that range. Really? Oh, that, that's actually that's actually quite a bit longer than I expected. Yeah, no, there, um, there's definitely, I, I want to I've never had a rat as a pet because there's issues with that when you work with rats. Um, Favoritism? But, yeah, uh, and infectious disease that could be transferred from one rat to another. Ah, uh, yes. I think about these things ahead of time. But... Yeah, I think rats typically live two to three years, but I've never actually looked it up. Sure. But like, are there studies that you know of that have actually studied um, drug use, abstinence, relapse throughout the entire natural lifespan of a rat? Yeah, that's one thing that I've always been interested in. Obviously, in an experimental setting, you need to have very strict control over your variables to be able to interpret them properly. Mm -hmm. and you need to have control groups. again. Um, but the one thing that I've always been curious in, I I don't know about this in the literature is it's common for humans to lapse. It's common for them to um, use a particular substance lapse and then go back into another phase of abstinence. So for example, you know, a lapse doesn't mean that you're going to, um, you know, return to drug use fully, but I'm sure that people struggle with this for the duration of their life. And in an experimental capacity, we don't really look at that timeline. Um, so it would be really interesting to do that. Right. There's definitely a, a whole difficult reality you get into with longitudinal research, where, of course, much more difficult to handle all the variables. It's more, much more time intensive, of course, by nature. And so it just seems like, unfortunately, because of the nature of that research, it just happens less frequently and the results are more muddy. And so we're actually lacking that kind of that part of the big picture, which is that humans live in an incredibly long time. And days, when you're trying to abstain from a, a drug, I would imagine that it's, you know, it's being able to actually see the rest of your life unfold almost and, and have an appreciation of, of what years and decades feel like would have a huge toll at like, we're, we're talking more of like, I guess, a higher level cognition kind of way. Yeah, um, definitely. I think that animal models do a good job of allowing us to control specific variables to be able to answer very specific questions. But I think anybody who is a good scientist will tell you that the animal model does not fully recapitulate the human situation, nor will it ever. Right. Um, and that's just, you need to take that with a grain of salt when you're working with these types of models. They do provide a very good foundation for future human clinical research. Um, that can then go on to ask those same types of questions, right? Right. Is your roommate trying performing surgery on the dog in the background? Seems like the dog's a little distressed. Uh, yeah, my dogs are both probably barking because they want to go for another walk because that's all they've been doing during quarantine. Uh, or the dogs didn't start their own podcast to stay busy during COVID? Yeah, they started a podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you got that question before or was that straight off the dome? No, that was that was uh, just off the top of that my. That was improv. Wow, I'm yeah. I'm very impressed. I actually did my um my PhD candidacy one of the papers on canine cognition because I was really interested in in it. So um, I know a little. Wait, so what does that entail? Sorry, you're saying you're you're you. Yeah. So in maybe we should talk a little bit about the graduate program, um, yeah. and kind of what to expect. So when you do, when you enter the first year of your PhD, you need to do your um, candidacy exams. And that pertains to picking a topic that's outside of your research field and essentially becoming an expert in it and being able to critically think about it. Um, and also then kind of designing a course. Um, and again, being able to critically think about the material that's in that course. And I think the important part that you learn from doing the candidacy exams is how to critically think about it. Um, and sometimes you realize you're not at that level. I had that experience. And I'll tell you uh, about it. Dr. Irinova is absolutely brilliant. 
um, and she tore me apart in my PhD candidacy exam. And most people would, you know, probably go home and cry, which I think I did for a little bit. Okay, but I'm so happy and thankful to her that she did that because that was the, the time that I finally recognized how to get to that thought level. What was the question that, that she asked that, sure. that you remember of, or, or some comment that, that you went, wow, this is, this is a level that didn't seem like it was different from that one that I'm at, but this is definitely like upper, like way, yeah. way beyond. I think it was a question that pertained to the Rascola Wegner model and some of the computations. And I think she asked me to try and include like a different factor within there and how I could account for something. And I was just like, yep, uh, that's a no for me right now. Hmm. Um, yeah, no need to dive into the complexity of that specific model or question, but. It was just yeah. a whole, oh, I see where I'm thinking and I see where you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Let me get to where you're thinking. So if she ever listens to this, thank you for being mean to me. I appreciate it. That's great. I'm most likely going to have a couple of guests from Yordanova's lab as well um, coming. So I will, I, I will get the kind of uh, PhD, master's, current, past uh, influence perspective. I'm sure most people will probably be on board uh, thinking the same way. I think it's important as a graduate student to be put in your place. Uh, kind of like when you get to grade 11 in your high school, you feel like you're on top of the world and you've already experienced everything else that everybody else has experienced. And, and obviously the, the analog here is undergraduates versus graduate students. But um, you realize in, in the example that you just gave within your first year of your PhD that, that there are people who are thinking way beyond what you're thinking. Oh yeah, and, and you can, I think the important part is that you can get there, but it requires work. Absolutely. Uh, but so how would you describe even that, that jump? Is there something that you've applied in the way that you do research now uh, that will allow you to get to that level? Like, have you figured out some way, some tactic uh, that you could even put into words to achieve that? Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a tactic. It's just you start to recognize that base level thinking is, is not where the creativity comes from. When I have a question, what does that question really ask? And does it answer what I want it to ask? And if it doesn't, how can I figure out, you know, how to answer my question? And what will this question actually mean in terms of the research or the implications? Um, and so I think you get to that level as opposed to just kind of you know, when you enter grad school, you know, do this experiment, do that experiment, you don't really understand perhaps why you're doing a particular experiment. But as you start to develop those critical thinking skills, you do start to think about, will this answer the question that I really wanted to ask? And how can I make this experiment answer as many questions as possible? Um, so I think it also comes with experience to a degree. Um, and taking the time to work on your skills outside of the lab. So doing the physical lab experiments is one thing, but learning how to think about it and learning how to write about it is another thing. So I'll give you another example of when I was torn apart in grad school. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say torn apart. Um, uh, Dr. Shalev, who is absolutely a fantastic supervisor, just looked at me one day and he said, you write like a scientist. And I said, well, I thought that's how I was supposed to. <laughs> So, like I had never had classes on how to write or anything like that mm -hmm. uh, he just looked at me and was like kind of without saying it um was was like yeah you're not a good writer he, he tried to be nice about it right. and I appreciate when people tell me comments like that because it's not a waste of my time and it becomes not a waste of their time and so Mahela had done that to me and then Ori had done that to me and I started to realize like oh hey I need to combine the two I need to be able to start critically thinking and being able to write how I'm critically thinking. And, and that's a very, writing is hard. And if people tell you that it's easy, they're full of it. Writing is hard. Oh Articulating clearly is hard. And so I started to learn. I took a course myself through Stanford to learn how to write better. And it definitely paid off because now I'm able to, I think, articulate those critical thinking um, skills that I developed as a result of Dr. Iadinova, and then now I've developed the writing skills as a result of Ori telling me 
you know, you need to step up your game. And I think ultimately, as I've been writing my dissertation, I've seen um, some really nice complexities come together that I'm very proud of. And he, um, when I sent him a draft, he actually sent back and said, wow, how did you improve drastically? <laughs> um, that's a good step in the right direction. Um, I like that I you got uh, kind of, you got really straightforward, no fluff feedback. Yep. But the feedback didn't give you ways to improve. It just called you out for something and then you had to decide or figure out for yourself how that was going to change. So you did that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you need to be called out. I don't think people do it as a way to try and hurt you or tear you down. I'm sure perhaps maybe some people do, but it definitely was not the intention of Dr. Yerdenova or Dr. Shalev um, when they did it. It was to try and make me a better scientist. And it seems like it worked to a certain degree, at least. De definitely. Um, I'm very thankful for both of those experiences because without people telling you, how do you know? Right. And so, yeah, I've learned to think at a level that I was not thinking at before as a result. And I've learned to write way better. And those two right. things didn't come from any classes that I took. Except from that additional Stanford course that you took, which, by the way, what was, if you yeah, could come so up with like one takeaway from that course, what would it be? Like, what really helped you the most? I think the one thing was that you need to keep your readers attention. Nobody wants to read your boring science paper. You need to captivate them to want them to read your paper. Mm -hmm. And you need to do it in a way that articulates your results in a way that makes them interested. And I think as a scientist, like I was a very technical writer before I wouldn't make leaps. I wouldn't make bounds. I wouldn't do analogies or anything like that. But I think it's important to remember that, not every reader is going to be an expert in your particular area. And the more readable your paper is, the more likely people are to read it. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And there are so many papers out there that have already been written. And every day there are new papers being published. And it's a competition for people's attention. I mean, it's, it's like the academic version of, of scrolling through your Facebook feed. Uh, lots of people are going to be posting lots of things. Some will be more relevant than others. And there are different ways you can go about uh, attracting and, and holding somebody's attention sometimes. Through yeah, a video. I, def I definitely used to hate the writing process and mm -hmm. now I love it because you get to think about it and then put your words on a piece of paper. But it takes time, I think, to get there um, because most people hate writing. So I Do would you think people hate writing because they really have no guidance because that's at least what, 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 how I feel and how it seems that you're saying is the case. I do to a degree. Um, I think that if there is no writing um, course or writing program that you should take it upon yourself to go and learn how to do it because you need to know how. It's a simple fact of the matter. If you want to be um, in sciences for the long term, you need to know how to write because that's one of the main ways that your findings get out there. Yeah, I would recommend all graduate students to take time to learn how to write and ask your supervisor if there's no course on it, you know, how, how can I do that? Um, you can do the free course that I did. It's through Stanford uh, University. It's on Coursera. It's free. And it's hosted by, I think it's Dr. Kristen Saniani, and she's brilliant. She explains things in such a simple way. She gives you exercises to do, but you need to take it upon yourself to gain those skills to get to that next step. Um, unless you are a gifted writer to begin with, which I was not. And probably most people are not either. You could be gifted in a particular way. You could be great at creative writing, but then in the academic context, it requires different sorts of skills. And like you were saying, being able to put very complex uh, concepts into easy to understand words. And, and I guess that that's really what the point of this podcast is. It's a, it's a spoken version, ideally, of communicating complex ideas in easy to understand ways. So I'm definitely going to try and find a link. Maybe if yeah. you could send me the link to that uh, website, I can, I, I can post that in the description yeah, for, for this sure. episode for people to benefit from. I'm sure I would also benefit from it. I will not claim that I am an expert writer. I do like to inject creativity probably well, almost to a fault. I am far from an expert writer, but I've definitely gotten better at it. And I think the point is, is that writing is a process. It's not something that you're going to magically turn to being a good writer overnight. It takes time. It takes work. And the only way to actually do that is to write. Um, and I think a lot of people focus a lot on trying to make sure that the first draft is perfect instead of just putting the words on the page and worrying about the elegance later. And I think that in general, you know, as a graduate student, I probably should have taken that time to learn how to write earlier than what I did. So that's why I would recommend all of you master's students and probably early PhD students to do it now instead of later because it will help you now.
I love that. It's a call to action right now. I think this is probably a, a great place to, to start wrapping up the episode, but this is basically the, the big takeaway. Of course, um, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty more to learn about how drugs operate on the brain and motivation. And I urge you all to go check out Cannabinoidology, available on Spotify and potentially other services as well. Yeah, uh, I think it's on Apple Podcasts, uh, maybe Google. Okay. I don't know, I do Anchor and Anchor does it for me. Perfect. So, so available lots of places, but one huge takeaway at any point in either your graduate career or even if you're an undergrad, I, I, I hope that there are undergraduate students at Concordia and elsewhere that do get wind of this podcast and can learn a little bit about uh, mistakes that you can avoid. That's essentially why we're here. Parents raise their children from embryos to adults, and they do this by teaching their children everything that they need to know that they did correctly and everything not to do. And it just makes life that much easier. So I am looking forward to making more mistakes that you all can learn from. And I really appreciate you coming on today, Alexandra. Super nice chatting and uh, offering up some really unique perspectives on your experience learning as you have been heading down this long journey of academia. So. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, you know, if there's anybody who has questions, I'm happy to to try and help in the same capacity that you are. So, you know, if, if somebody reaches out, please don't hesitate to follow up on something that I've talked about. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, one question that I would ideally like to ask to all of my uh, all of my guests is a question that if I could, if people would be more willing to open their doors at this point in time, then I would ask them what they wanted to be when they grew up, uh, when they were a child, what did they want to be when they grew up? So how would you answer that question? I assume not a cannabinoidologist. No, and I wouldn't call myself a cannabinoidologist. I, I don't even know. I'm a learnologist. I just like to learn stuff. Learnologist. Whatever that. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. When did that desire fade away or, or transform? I think it faded away when I started to take my science classes in high school. Um, I had a really, really amazing um, professor for chemistry and biology, and she really um, tried to push me to pursue sciences um, because she felt like I had a talent at it. Um, and so that's kind of where everything started to shift. And then as I started to taking the more AP, I guess, like the the academic root science classes, I started to be like, oh, I really like to do this stuff. I like to learn about it. And it kind of just took off from there. Um, Have you had periods where you've questioned that decision? Not necessarily to go back to um, being a lawyer, but to ditch everything and uh, do something else? Um, I honestly, at the end of my PhD, I was like, you know, if I don't go into academia, I'm going to go write the LSAT um, and go to law school. I, okay. thought, I thought about doing that. I still might. I, like I said, I just like to learn stuff. But at this point, um, it would be a lot more effort. And I really do love what I do. So I want to stick with what I do right now um, because it's a passion of mine. And I'm not sure if a lawyer is, being a lawyer is something that I want to do or something that I think I want to do um, because you never know until you're in that situation. And I'm already in the situation that I'm in now and I know that I love it. So okay. I'll, what I love for now. <laughs> right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. So just kind of keep get, going down this road. You get to be a little bit of a lawyer in the arguments that we get to make in papers. So. Right. Of course. Yeah. There is an element of, or a, a large element of having to defend your position. And so reading yeah. about theories is kind of like reading about civil code. You know, you need to figure out what, the, what are the laws of the brain as far as we're concerned right now? What do we know and how can we fit our ideas into the framework that already exists? Now, you have uh, yeah, exactly. painted your current academic experience in a relatively positive light, but as everybody knows, at every point in life, no matter how much you enjoy something, there will be elements of it you do not enjoy. So, for the sake of getting it all out there, what's the worst part of your, of your post-grad, or I guess your graduate, uh, graduate academic career, if you could pinpoint one thing or one moment? So I would say that... Uh, probably not a lot of people know this about me and I'm, I'm happy to share it because maybe it will help somebody else who's going through um, a similar experience. Um, grad school was a grounding for me because both my mom and my mother-in-law had cancer and one actually passed away while I was doing my PhD. So many of times I was flying home or driving home back and forth um, to take care of them and not a lot of people knew that at the time. 
Um, so grad school was actually something that I looked forward to, which I know for some people, they find it um, very challenging and stressful. My outside life was challenging and stressful. Mm -hmm. wow. And so grad school ended up being kind of this fun place for me. So it's probably a very different experience than what most people um, would have had at the time. I think the one thing that's challenging in grad school, though, is trying to balance everything and manage your time. Um, and so I had to learn. I'm someone who works all the time. And my husband would be like, hey, what are you doing? Like, can you stop and like watch a movie with me once in a while? So I had to learn when enough was enough um, and when to kind of not hit that brick wall. And I think uh, Corey would probably attest when he would tell me, like, are you sure, like, you don't want to take a break or you don't want to slow down on an experiment or something like that. And I recommend everybody find an outlet. So I like to go to the gym. Um, and then I also recommend everybody set themselves a deadline at night where you will not do work anymore. It did not change me. So every night at seven o'clock, I'm not doing work anymore. And that's seven. for hours. Whoa. Okay. When yeah. do you start working though? Uh, when I would go into the lab, I would have to be there at 8.30. Okay. So I would work until 7, usually 7 at night. And then I would say, okay, after this, um, it's Alex time. And I think it's actually very healthy to do something like that because you take time for yourself to recharge. And to be quite honest, if I kept doing work at like 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, it probably wouldn't be very productive work anyway. Um, so I tried to develop these time management skills whereby set my spell myself specific times to work on things and that's it I would work on them during that time and once that time's over I'm done with it um, obviously sometimes there are exceptions to that rule but I think you need to find a happy medium or a balance between your academic life and your life outside because you are not your work right absolutely I 100% agree. I guess one, one small comment that I would make about that for those who are listening is you don't necessarily have to follow that specific breakdown where you work for the middle 12 hours of the day. I personally like to split up my work to the morning and the late evening. And midday, I find I naturally just have less energy and less focus. And so it's, it, it's actually almost like a biphasic work schedule. Yeah, I would say you just need to find what works for you because you know yourself best. And that's what worked for me. Um, but I would recommend everybody try to find a strategy that works for them. For sure. And to actually test, test things out. A lot of people um, are capable of making the, or I guess, coming to the realization that change needs to be made, but then actually affecting that change is the difficult part. Lots of people might say, oh, I should really lose a few pounds. And just being self-aware is great. But then being able to take action, setting yourself a nice SMART goal, maybe. Are you a fan of SMART goals? SMART, yeah. SMART, measure, attainable, realistic, timely. Yeah. Exactly. Specific. All those. So feel like free. As in like a smartphone. That's where mm. my brain went. <laughs> you, could, you could track your SMART goals on your smartphone. That would be SMART. Um, you can also track them on a piece of paper, however you choose. Um, but I, I think that there actually is definitely a skill to goal creation and then goal attainment too. So that could maybe be some, uh, a common thread throughout this podcast. We don't need to dive too deep into it now, but definitely realizing where you can change and figuring out the best way to start making incremental change. So yep. I totally back that. Um, and just, just in that quick little discussion, we kind of knocked off a whole bunch of questions that I'd wanted to get to. So I guess that's pretty much Pretty much everything. Uh, one thing I also like to figure out um, about people in, in general is, is how they view themselves. So as both a person and an academic, if you were to describe yourself using three words, would those three words apply equally to you as an academic and as a non-academic or just like outside academia? And uh, yeah, like you kind of flip a switch at 7 p.m.? Uh, no, I don't. I think there's definitely certain traits that I have that are very good for both aspects. So I would consider myself someone who's very driven. Um, that doesn't change regardless of what aspect of my life it is. I don't know how else I would describe myself. Uh, I guess maybe humble. I don't really like to talk much about myself um, or tell people kind of how I view myself or if somebody tells me good job, I always feel weird. Um, I do it simply because I love it and I'm passionate about it, not because I want this praise or whatnot. 
But yeah. it's nice when you do get the praise, especially if you don't want it. So you're in a unique position where you happen to be highly skilled at something that you feel you don't need the praise for. There are people out there who might want a little more praise and they're not getting it because they don't have the skills. So I think you're actually in a great position there. Yeah, it, feel, it honestly feels a little weird when people are like, oh, congratulations. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't, I, so half the time I don't even know how to respond to it. Like, yep, okay. One other trait that I would describe myself is athletic. Athletic in the sense that I do things outside of the lab, but also within the lab. I don't know if it applies that much. What would an athletic term be in the lab? But maybe a better word is to just say versatile. Okay. Um, I feel like I have a lot of skills that I can combine um, both in my life outside of academia and within academia. Um, so I think a lot of the traits that cross over in my life are very similar. Um, but I obviously do have things that I do outside, outside of academia that have nothing to do with what I do in the lab. For sure. I would hope so. It's nice to have the balance. You don't really want to, even if you stop explicitly working on your thesis at 7 p.m., you don't want to be kind of buzzing around the house thinking about your, your research. You want to actually be able to dissociate and do something. But it's interesting, though, the, the intersection between humility and athleticism. Uh, do you find you're very competitive when it comes to athletics? I think if anybody knows me, they know that I am extremely competitive. I will not let you win. No okay. matter how hard you try, I will not let you. I will work harder, I will work better, I will work faster, whatever I need to do to get there, I will do it. So my husband calls me Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. Nice. That I have a similar personality to Michael Jordan. I don't think so, but he's uh, an ulterior outside judge, so. Okay, no, that's I great. What, I don't know what that says about me, but. <laughs> I guess, I mean, you gave me four words to describe yourself, which were driven, humble, athletic, and versatile. And I think all four of those would probably apply pretty closely to Michael Jordan. So I wouldn't say that's a terrible, um, terrible person to be compared to, first off, and also seems to be a pretty good match to your uh, self-ascribed um, descriptors. So Perhaps, yeah. yeah. That's great. I had wanted to say something, but now it is, it is, it is gone forever. It has escaped me. Um, but this, is, this has been thoroughly enjoyable. Definitely um, the timing for the podcast. I have not yet decided whether I want it to be slightly shorter form or longer, but I really enjoyed this length. So I'm willing to totally even just leave this whole thing uncut. Let people skip forward. We can pause, rewind. We'll see what happens. But maybe I can uh, hear back from those who are listening. You can contact me through abstractcast at gmail.com if you have any comments or anything moving forward, uh, topics you'd like to be covered. I can find the students who would fit into that realm. And of course, you can reach out to Alexandra. Do you have uh, maybe some contact info that I could leave for someone or if you want to just maybe Instagram shout out? Uh, yeah, something? You can, uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. That's usually where I do most of my science stuff. It's at cool. uh, I am Alex Chisholm. Okay. Um, I can send it to you. Um, cool. I yeah. am Alex Chisholm. Chisholm, C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M. Yes. Yep. So cool. Great. I will, I will see you on Twitter then. And I hope to see uh, or hear or speak for those who are listening to this podcast next time. So uh, have a great rest of your afternoon. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, we will talk in the future. Hopefully. Yeah, thanks.